Hello everyone. Um, welcome to Blarney Books once again and uh, I start off of course by acknowledging that we're on the country of the Pequawarung people of the Gunditjmara Nation and we extend our respects to them. Um, it's lovely to be back here again and to welcome Stephen Conti. G'day. Thanks Joff and thanks to everyone for coming out. Now a quick disclaimer before we start, Stephen um, has been through a respiratory illness and um, he wishes you all to know that he is not infectious, he's just sexy. Oh, <laughs> indeed. Got the official is. stamp of approval, COVID-free, everything. It's fine. Um, there are, of course, um, Dean's Bar is over in that corner if anybody needs a drink. And when we've finished, um, Stephen will be signing books for you and um, Joe will be selling them over there. Um, so please do buy early, buy often. Um, right. So, things to cover first. Stephen, I thought we should talk a little bit about your background because it's really a fascinating journey that you've taken to being an author. Um, originally from Sydney and then from rural New South Wales? That's correct. Up, yeah. up north in the uh, Northern Tablelands. Very yes. cold weather ordinarily. Yeah. And that you then, you walked through Europe and at some stage worked as a bank teller, which sort of struck me as experiential extreme. I worked as a bank teller just to actually uh, forward the fare oh, the to you. Around. Yeah, the right, other way yeah. around. And uh, actually, yeah, hitchhiked initially, actually. I've had a, a few journeys through Europe, and as, but as a 19-year-old, yes, yeah. hitchhiking 5,000 k's through and subse subsequently walking through Italy. So this was something I was going to ask you later on, but seeing as we're on it, did you actually go to the Tolstoy estate? when you? Ah, uh, the embarrassing thing. I've just met Jill down here who has, oh. and... Uh, and uh, up front, I have to admit that uh, I've managed, I've created the Tolstoy estate out of copious research and uh, resource to my imagination. So it's, uh, I, you know, I once uh, spoke to an author, Mark Henshaw, who claims, you know, the reader does so much of the work of constructing a place, you know, in a sense, a novel is actually created by the reader uh, between the text and them. And so hopefully I've, I've laid enough suggestive material that they will build that literally that palace in the sky in their own minds that right I, i'm amazed that you hadn't been there because that the picture of it through this novel is so vivid um, and in particular towards the end there's quite a brief passage about his grave and of course i did that thing that everybody's doing now when you read novels that you know i'm reading and i'm googling and i looked up the grave and it, it's it's exactly as you depict it we probably looked at the same website. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you did more than that. <laughs> um, so you released Zookeeper's War in 2007. Correct. And that won the first Prime Minister's Literary Award. Sure. Which was a stack of money. Yeah, absolutely. A stack of cash-free money. Uh, Tax-free money. <laughs> and what happens um, when you win such a thing early in a career? Is it all upside? Is there a downside to it? Well, you know, the... the the elephant in the cliche is the, the gap of time between the publication of my first novel and, and this second one. But I can, I can honestly say it wasn't the weight of expectation of the first novel having won a prize. And it was perhaps maybe a little bit of complacency that was induced. I thought, okay, I've had this success. I can be freer and, and write something that just pleases me. I mean, I just thought I could try another genre, so I turned to uh, what effectively was my third novel, uh, a novel set in Australia, more or less contemporary, and, you know, no one was interested in it. I've written four novels in total, two of them set in Australia, and, and they just haven't excited people. And so I'm slow, and life intervened in other forms, and, uh, 
And so there was this big gap. So its effect wasn't this massive weight of expectation. It was almost the opposite. It made me um, a little incautious and carefree. Yeah. Mm. And do you think, has it given the novel a longer tail in terms of its commercial life, that people know that it won a big gong? Yeah, and it certainly gave it that initial boost. I mean, to, yeah. to talk, um, you know, brass tacks, it, it had, at, at the point that it had sold, it was a, a, a novel by, uh, by a new writer. It had sold 3,000 copies at that stage. You know, it subsequently, I think, sold about 17,000 copies in Australia and was published internationally. So you know, that made all the difference, actually. For a new prize, it was very influential. Yeah. But to go back to that, that sort of author's journey, you had worked in, you talk in your bio about all these different people jobs that you've done. Um, I, I'd made a note of it somewhere that there was the bank tellering, but then there were a whole lot of other things that you'd been involved in. That, that must feed into the writing work in some way, having had all of that face-to-face -face time with people, you know, often in customer context. Sure, I guess you do meet all, all sorts of types and a variety of jobs. You know, I've not sort of focused on one profession. Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, some of the, especially the larger of life, you know, you do meet these. Uh, there's a character in this, this novel, Molyneux, who's a sort of a bon vivant oh, and a Bulgarian. And, uh, <laughs> and, you know, I've definitely met his uh, sort of you know, caricature in, yes. in real life. I, um, um, I was going to ask you about him in a little while that, that he felt to me like a cross between Sergeant Schultz and Benny Hill. Yeah. Uh, with a little, with a little, I've tried to demonstrate that he's got a little bit of actual genuine culture and knowledge behind him as well. But that's, but that, yes, that's yes. fair enough. He's meant to be a character. One of the wonderful things in a novel is if you have characters who are prepared to say absolutely anything, you know, they're disinhibited for what, whatever reason and, uh, and just come out with it. And so it's a great joy to have a character like, like him. Um, to sort of, yeah, say the unsayable. Yeah, and he felt to me like, you know, this might be a reflection of the fact that I'm ploughing away at the time while I'm reading your book and, and, and you get in those periods of great drudgery. And I was thinking that you must have been feeling enormous relief going, oh, and now I can chuck in a Molyneux line and that'll be good fun. Yeah, yeah. But th there's a real upbeat, up-tempo thing about him. Yeah, I mean, you know, my fiction's always got dark components to it. Um, but I've always felt that books are more moving, more engaging when they at least gesture towards containing the whole of life. That, of course, we all go through hard times and d tough times, but we laugh as well. And, and, you know, one of the novels that I really admire in that regard is, is Sophie's Choice, which, you know, if people know anything about it, often it's because they've just seen the film. And, you know, it's this horrific premise of, of, of a, a woman in a concentration camp. But what people who haven't read the book don't realise, it's, it's laugh out loud. You know, it's chock-a-block full of Jewish jokes. It's, it's you know, it is, I, you know, it publishing in-house jokes. I mean, they tend to be towards the start of the novel. Mm. And, you know, also pratfalls of a young man trying to uh, lose his virginity. It's, it's hilarious material. And I just think that that actually, the tragedy of that book, it's like in Shakespeare, that there's, there's laughter and there's tragedy within the same work. Mm. Um, a couple more things about, about your life before we sort of delve more deeply into Tolstoy estate. But um, one of them is, how did you come to move from Melbourne down to here? Was it from Melbourne to here? Yeah, it yeah. was. So I've been gradually uh, zigzagging south throughout my life. Yeah. I was sort of raised in northern New South Wales. Uh, so at the time that I met my then partner, we, we were Melbourne-based, and we simply made a decision. Uh, she was originally from Portland, which was the key thing. 
and we wanted to afford our own home. And uh, and I was I'd grown up in a small small town anyway, so it wasn't something foreign to me. And it was a lovely a lovely place to come. Mm. So that drew us down here. And uh, yeah, it's not something uh, you know. Fortunately, my ex and I, as some in the audience know, get on very well together and raising a child. And and I certainly don't regret my decision to come to this part of the world. Yep. Yep. Mm. Um, Okay, and last thing you mentioned in your bio about the fact that you are making an eco house in Karoi. There's a couple of things about that that, that intrigue me. Why it must be more than a mere reno if you're saying it in your bio. Is this taking some time? It is. I've had all sorts of uh, planning permit issues. Um, <laughs> uh, the most recent, I look, it, this will start construction in as little as a week, but um, gee, I've had some hold ups. The most galling of all, just uh, for Hope there's uh, any if there's any members in the Moyne Council uh, <laughs> present. Uh, it's like the, a Blues Brothers line. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> Good the, evening, uh, officers. <laughs> the, the, the last complaint, which uh, was that the building was too tall. Uh, now this is a tiny little doll's house of a house. It's a small eco house, and I thought, in the context of the new IGA looming over, menacing <laughs> the entire street, my little place is too tall. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was. I'm, I'm still. Simmering over that, but anyway, I've got past that now as well. Okay. Mm. Now, just for the benefit of if there happen to be any architects in the house, um, what is an eco house? Oh, it's just solar passive, very low energy consumption. So, you know, yeah, so yeah, primarily the, the really low energy consumption, very little need for heating and um, solar, of course, uh, as many people have these days. Um, but also, yeah, just small in scale uh, yeah. in terms of using less materials and so on. So, um, yeah, one, hopefully one day I'll be able to put it on a, uh, make it an open open house on a, uh, when on an environment weekend and so on. Yeah, yeah. And mm. have you thought about design in terms of your writing work? Have you thought about it as a nook? Yes, it's, um, I mean, there's a question of whether you want to be working in your living space um, or in the local cafe and so on. So, look, I've certainly I've focused on making the main living space as pleasant as possible. And at least initially, that will be my workspace as well. Mm. Mm. Okay, okay. Now, I've circled around um, Tolstoy Estate too much and delve into it. Um, released in September, amidst, um, I know this because it happened to me, something like 600 novels that, that came pouring out of everywhere in September last year mm. because of this backlog that was created by COVID. Um, how did you go with that as a launch experience? How was it getting the book out there? So, I mean, you can always feel you know, sorry for one yourself and you can always feel grateful. It depends on how you look at things. And, you know, publishing is an industry that's been able to continue, unlike live music, for example, or the performing mm -hmm. arts. So I don't think I ever became seriously um, infuriated or, or upset. Uh, so I think, by and large, it's worked okay for, for me. I, I enjoy, really enjoy events like this, but I don't de depend on it. It's not, you know, I know some writers say, um, yes, who, who just absolutely just need the feedback from the audience uh, when they produce a book. And so that's not me. So I haven't really been distraught about it. Uh, and, you know, I've been lucky enough that the book's so far been able to Fight, fight its own corner yeah. and, 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 yeah, hold up so far. So yeah. it's been good. Um, okay, so Tolstoy Estate is set in June 1941. And 
uh, uh, actually it's November. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's the other end of Operation Barbarossa, which that, is that's the, correct. The right, opening yep. phase of the German invasion of Russia, right? The right. Soviet Union. Which reminded me, in in many ways, and I'm sure you intended this, of Napoleon's venture into Russia and and and. The, the idea of a huge, well-resourced army just being bogged down in the snow, that terrible... And your descriptions of the cold are so evocative. Um, you, this is obviously a very, very serious work of fiction, but there were times when I thought this thought and then I saw that you had written it yourself about your own book. You called it a dark Teutonic version of MASH. Um, That's right. There, there is a real MASH feeling about some of this when there's a battle nearby and the field hospital is suddenly inundated with casualties and all of the joking stops and these people are just working frantically to keep up. Yeah, it's interesting. It, MASH was not a, a show that I was ever sort of devoted to as a, well, as a child because it goes back that far. Uh, I don't think it's a, a powerful influence on this. No. Um, uh, you know, it's more an echo. It's, yeah, it's an echo. And, and what surprised, you know, what did surprise me in the book were... were how funny some of the scenes, t I like to think, turned out. Yeah. Uh, and so that, in a sense, was the thing that took me a little bit by surprise. Uh, so who knows what was going on in my unconscious there. Mm. Um, it might be best if you perhaps start us off by explaining what's going on at the start of the book and, and, and how the plot works. Sure. So my hero, Paul Bauer, is a 40-year-old German military surgeon. And we meet him at the opening of the novel uh, in a truck that is that is sort of in fits and starts pushing through the Russian mud in a convoy. The rain is hammering down on the, on the, the roof and Bauer is trying to pretend to remain asleep while his two sidekicks, uh, his corporal and his private, well, two of his operating assistants are there sort of doing a kind of waiting for Godot exchange mm. about mm. Uh, should they have stayed back in, for, in safety in that previous village. And so you get a, a, a sense and then the convoy stops. Uh, and you get a sense of the, 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 the mud as you, as you step into it, rising to, the, to your knees. And, and I, I want this novel to be one in which really, uh, I like fiction that you feel embodied in. It's not yeah. just talking heads, it's, yeah. it's, people, you know, it's a body moving through space. And indeed, did you, am I imagining this, or had you done a sort of dissertation in there somewhere about the Russian mud and its... <laughs> It's oh, history of stopping people, stopping armies. I was very curious about it because you would read just as it's, it's almost a, uh, a truism of popular history how bad the Russian mud was in that first autumn. And I thought, well, you see pictures of horses up to their fetlocks and, and I thought, well, how did they continue to move? Because they did. And so I actually ended up um, speaking to this uh, American historian. He, he was collaborating on a history incredibly fine detailed history. These two academics were working on the period of the 15th of October 1941 <laughs> to the 30th of October 1941 on a 400-kilometre central section of the front which they maintained the war was lost for Germany in those two weeks in that section of the front. God. And, and this guy was hilarious on, on the topic of mud. You know, he was actually a comedian. <laughs> he knew everything there was to know about mud. So I, I got to, I got a, a, a 3,000 word essay on, on email from, on, on, on the mud from him. And, uh, so, sorry, I interrupted you, but, but tell us where this convoy is heading and, and, and what goes on thereafter. Yeah, so they, they arrived that evening after various vicissitudes um, at, the, at the former 
uh, at Yasnaya Polyana, the former estate of Count Leo Tolstoy. Uh, and it's dark, it's raining, and uh, there they encounter, Bauer is astonished, he's woken to this news that that's where they are. The building has been spared, unlike almost every other building in, in Russia, by the retreating Soviets because of its immense cultural significance to the nation. And Bauer is, amongst other things, a, a former, a passionate reader of literature and an admirer of Russian literature. So for him, it's a, a very spiritual experience. Anyway, they, they turn up there and try to establish themselves, but they're immediately confronted by this fiery local acting chief custodian, Katerina Trubetskaya, who proceeds uh, uh, to live dangerously and to give the Germans hell. And Katerina is, is one of those other characters that, you know, she is uh, unmoored by rage and therefore says stuff, which is what you want in a book. And she's a, she's a similar age to Bauer. She's a, a very disappointed former um, passionately idealistic communist revolutionary intellectual and she's actually we find out subsequently in the book that she's been deeply disillusioned by stalinism and and actually has been had a had a mouth zipped for 15 years uh and so in a way when the german arrives germans arrive she's actually uh authorized by patriotism to just let loose uh because of these this other bunch of hideous uh, uh, totalitarian goons um, and so she kind of get, finds, finds massive release in that and, and yeah, uh, just manages to escape with her life with, uh, uh, with various stratagems. And then the other, as well as the ideological gap between her and these soldiers, there's also the fact that she's pretty correctly got them pegged as Philistine. Mm. They're a bunch of bogans and they've, they've invaded Tolstoy's estate and she's furious that the, at the sacrilege that that represents. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I encountered this story um, through an, a marvellous uh, book by Eva Curie, the daughter of Marie Curie, the discoverer of radium. And uh, Eva Curie was uh, a, a well-known writer in her own right in the 1940s because she'd written her mother's biography. And she was sent by Time magazine to tour the war. And she was actually, it's an extraordinary story in and of itself, probably deserving of a novelistic treatment. Mm -hmm although she's already written it beautifully herself, she turned up two weeks after the liberation of the estate from the Germans. So she, uh, they'd just been kicked out after a six-week occupation. So my novel charts this six weeks. And in reality, Eva turned up two weeks later and was able to speak to the local custodians. And she was struck, and what struck me in turn was the way that the she said the locals and the Germans alike were acutely con conscious of, of this place as a, its, its ideological and even its metaphysical significance as a, as a shrine to this great poet of national resistance to a foreign invader, invader. Everyone was aware of the Napoleonic parallels and it became symbolic. Okay, is Germany going to have the wherewithal to, def to overcome uh, the Napoleonic example and actually mm. triumph and it and yes and I'd say the Bowers commanding officer Julius Metz becomes acutely aware of this as well and uh, and starts to get a bit unbalanced by the whole contest with Tolstoy. But, but in your research was it the case that the Germans were aware that they were repeating a famous historical mistake? 
They must have known what they were headed into. Yes, I think um, I think right from the word go, uh, a lot of ordinary German people had deep qualms about the whole war, mm-hmm. uh, and then they were a lot of you know they'd been through this horrific war, uh, but then. France fell so relatively easy, easily that they started to get optimistic. Uh, certainly, the Hitler Hitler had a notion that, rightly actually, that the Russian people were fed up to the back teeth with Stalinism, and he had a metaphor that we the, the door is rotten, we just need to kick it in, um, but uh, didn't count on the way that the communists would be able to, you know, rally around the fatherland and completely change their mm. tune about. Uh, so. So I guess um, you know it's the grotesque optimism bias on on the part of spe- specifically of Hitler. Yeah. Um, one of the first things that this novel taught me that that I had no idea about was the enormous reverence for Tolstoy within the Soviet Union and the way that that had transcended these different versions of Soviet communism, Marxism and Trotskyism, Trotskyism and Leninism and all these different ideas, <coughs> somehow Tolstoy had remained, he just sailed above all of it. And, mm. and the, the estate in many ways represented that. Yeah, so of course he was an, uh, he was, uh, an aristocrat to his bootstraps. Um, and, and as I have Katerina commenting, as uh, you can trace his ancestry back further than the Tsar, all, all the way back to the Rurik the Viking. Um, so, but um, he got the official uh, imprimatur stamp of approval because he had been such a critic of Tsarist culture and in particular of the Orthodox Church and had also, you know, as he grew older, become a, uh, an absolute embodiment he would, of, of, of living simply and frugally. And, I mean, he was, a, of course, a mass of contradictions. Mm. Uh, on a grand estate. Yes, on, that's right, <laughs> on a grand stage, on a grand estate. And, uh, you know, it's, he was so egocentric that he effectively tried to start his own religion, Tolstoy, Tolstoyism, which still has its adherence today and uh, deeply influenced Mahatma Gandhi. So, uh, yeah, he had all of these, these strains of um, support for the common man uh, that, that made his work acceptable. And it became especially acceptable uh, during, as a propaganda instrument when uh, the Soviet Union was invaded. Um, one of one of the great relationships in this novel, there's obviously the relationship between Katerina and Paul, but also the relationship between the story that you're telling and War and Peace. And um, it really made me want to reread War and Peace until I got it down and realised how damn big it is. But um, I remember trying to read it maybe in my early 20s. Um, but you talk about characters in this book, I think Katerina maybe has read it several times. Um, what's your relationship to War and Peace? Well, my relationship with War and Peace is very comparable to Paul's because I have um, Paul... In short, it was the most precocious act of reading I ever did as a teen. So actually, uh, I grew up in a boys' boarding school and I was turning to books as respite and relief and sanctuary. And and, I just finished reading uh, Lord of the Rings and I thought, what's another long book I can find in the (laughs) library? And there it was. And I actually do think I drew a lot from it. I don't think I missed immense, you know, uh, not a lot of it went over my head. I mean, so in the course of my novel, Paul, who's read it as a young man, re-reads the novel. Katerina virtually hurls the novel in the German's faces and say, says, look, read this. This is what's going to happen to you. 
And it's a particular copy of the novel too. That's right. It's a German translation. It's Tolstoy's personal German uh, proofs, I guess, of, of, of or the, the German publisher's uh, gift to him. And so, uh, so he rescues it from his commanding officer. Paul rescues it from his commanding officer's rage and takes it. And Katarina's takes up Katarina's challenge. He's an insomniac, and he just after a hard day of surgery, he he just reads and reads and reads, and and is having this dual experience of living it and reading it. Um, we should talk more about Paul because he's a wonderful character. To what extent, as a doctor, to what extent is he derived from your parents, who I think were both medical? Yeah, that's right. I mean, often in historical fiction, sometimes there's the unexpected stuff that ha is autobiographical. And uh, I had a stepfather who was a was a, a, a doctor and um, and a mother who was a retired nurse. And so I, yeah, the medicine and, and bodily things and, and so on have always fascinated me. And, you know, then I've, um, for good measure, I'm a self-aware hypochondriac. So <laughs> all that stuff has always fascinated me. And and so it, I felt this material was coming together that, you, you know, ideally you find a story that only you can tell or you can tell in a way that no one else can. And, and I thought, you know, I love Russian literature. I've always been interested in, uh, you know, or aghast, but fascinated by war. And, and also I've got this medical thing. And so one of the great joys in this book was writing the surgical scenes, and which is interesting because I'm actually very squeamish in real life. I, <laughs> I discovered this as a young man going to see bodies being dissected at Berlin University. I was the sort of um, felt an enterprising young writer. This is what the sort of thing you do. And <laughs> That's very Tara Moss. Yeah, and, and got taken through and seeing bodies in various stages of disassembly. Yeah. And, uh, and then... Very interesting, very interesting, and then realised I was passing out. I was able to <laughs> run out just in time. Uh, so, but those surgical scenes, yeah, I just wanted, there's one in particular that I, I wanted to make it this, this, this epic scene, and it's not by no means unrealistic, where Bauer and his commanding officer um, do surgery for 37 hours straight, and, you know, going through stages of, of, of just exhaustion, hallucination, just... Um, emotional breakdown, yeah, mm. but having to go on because there's no one else. That is an unforgettable scene. <coughs> and the things that they have to improvise as they're going along. Limited equipment. And... Um, when, when I wrote Java Ridge, I um, spoke to our local GPs <coughs> wanting to know how to write medical things and um, that led down a line of inquiry to an anaesthetist in Geelong called Paul Goggin. And I saw in their acknowledgements that you also chatted to Paul Goggin. Same and route. I thought to myself, same route, there yeah. you go. And I thought to myself, he must be wondering <coughs> what on earth is going on in Port Ferry. <laughs> um, what did you learn from Paul? And, and yeah, tell us a bit more about that. Well, one of the difficulties of the research uh, was um, the dealing with the fact that the, the subject material was the 1940s, medical technology as of the 1940s. The reason I'm hesitating, folks, is I'm going to have to cough a little bit violently, so apologies for this. So seven out of ten. So Paul was um, uh, only able to advise me because he was not there in the 1940s either. Uh, so we kind of worked it out ourselves about um, uh, yeah the, the the different stages of inducing a, a, an anaesthesia and so on. So. And the horrible scene when someone gets it wrong. 
Mm. I was lucky enough to encounter some a couple of memoirs by British surgeons, and uh, yeah, they described this process of um, having inexperienced anaesthetists working with them, and how it's a question of getting the right level so that the the muscles are literally not sort of wriggling under the scalpel, um, but also <laughs> not going too far. And uh, cases where it did go too far, and the patient died on the table. Mm. Mm. It reminded me of there's a wonderful book by Kate Cole Adams called Anesthesia. Mm, about I'm with it. Exactly those, yeah, the mixture of levels and the way in which I remember talking to Paul Goggin about this that different anaesthetists have different personal formulae as to the way that they like to balance those chemicals. Um, going back to Bauer, he, he's, he's really the moral centre of the story, I think, and, and he's so decent and compassionate and um, thoughtful and, and, and you have a sense that <coughs> if ever you were in the terrible position of being wheeled into one of these field hospitals that he's exactly the person you'd want to be looking down at you? Yeah, I, th I think he's... Um, I did write him, I wanted him to be an admirable man, you mm. know, and uh, that was a definite, not flawless, but uh, uh, I mean, surgeons have a reputation of some of them as, as a sort of machismo branch of medicine and um, yeah. being performers and egotists and so on. But I think there's uh, space within a profession for all sorts. And so, yeah, I've made Paul a different sort of man. Yeah, and, and even to the extent that as the novel progresses <coughs> and we learn more about his life after the war, that he achieves other great things later on. And yet the way in which he explains them when he's narrating his own life, he's almost hesitating about owning his own achievements, isn't he? he he's not a braggart at all. No, that's right. And... And I mean, since you've mentioned this, I mean, I, I, I did want that post-six-week post, uh, period, I wanted to give the, the novelist that sort of scope of, to gesture at the scope that War and Peace has itself yes. by, by kind of gesturing at the decades, which means that we get to know at the beginning or soon into the book, all well, to be technically correct, about 55% of the way into the book, we learn that uh, Paul survives the war. Mm. Uh, and to, in, in that, there was a type of sacrifice, but... Uh, of, of tension, but I hope it built tension in other ways and I wanted to, yeah, sh show really what happens to two decent people when they're ground together by these two vast grinding stones of totalitarian systems. And you know, one of the remarkable things about the Second World War is that the way that ordinary people around the world live these incredibly epic lives. Uh, you know, the war had you're spoiled for settings. You've got the Pacific, you've got the Arctic, you've got the Russian front, the, the African desert. It just goes on and on and on, and, uh, and ordinary people lived it. So, yeah, I just did want to give a sense of that scale of experience as well over, over and the way it continued to transform the whole 20th century. I remember you had written somewhere about this, about uh, you may have been asked the question, why are so many... Um, very important novels set in World War II, as opposed to other theatres of conflict. And part of your answer was that there are all of these geographical settings, everything from a Pacific island to the snows of Russia um, and, and Japan and, and even here. That, that, um, and you've now you've visited this theme twice. Yeah, well, as I said, in a way, it's sort of almost accidental that I'm becoming a, a genre writer. But, um, yeah, I think there's something just... Uh, there's something just so so grindingly terrible about the First World War. Mm. And, you know, some brilliant writers, Pat Barker, for example, in the Ghost Road trilogy, have managed to tackle it. 
but there's something just so dreadful in the experience of the men, uh, primarily in the First World War, it was the men, uh, ironically enough, the way in, in which um, symbolically speaking, you could argue that men were feminized in that conflict by being made to be await their fates passively in the trenches. And, uh, and you know, there, are, there is at least some psychic relief in a mobile war where, however, perhaps out of your own hands, your fate was, um, that people at least got to move about. And I think that that gives, I mean, I've, I've been interested in entrapment and containment and I've done it again by containing most of the action within the, the bounds of the Tolstoy estate. But, uh, but yeah, I think that there's, there is s more, for the, more psychic relief for the reader in that war, reading his stories from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, just to come back briefly to Bauer and his surgery, the, I had a sense in your technique in describing, particularly that marathon scene of the 37 hours of surgery, that all of the periphery of the scene seems to be blurred and that you've tunnelled right in on what's directly under Bauer's hands. And it's really skillful. And um, what then becomes evident is just how crude the surgery is. That a lot of the times a patient is wheeled in at speed and he's looking at someone covered in muck and blood and has to work out what the problem is and literally how to pull that foreign object out or plug that hole or whatever the case may be and then quickly get that person out and start again. It's extraordinary. Yeah, well, you know, I'm comparatively ignorant about modern surgery, but um, I'm, I'm sure that that pure plumbing level of it is is still uh, a factor at some level. But you're right, yeah. it's, it's mediated. You know, I, I had a hernia operation and they went into via my belly button or whatever. It is extraordinary. But, yeah, at some stage, the scalpel has to hit the skin. Yeah. Things have to be removed and the skin is not always neat as it is in a, a, a civilian. You know, it's not always painted up. It's... It's 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 fil filthy with dirt and cordite and shredded shredded uniform and so on and so these are the sort of obstacles that war surgeons would were and probably yeah certainly still are dealing with and, and the other things that it highlighted to me were firstly that um, a doctor is after all a scientist and that there's there's a hypothesis at play and secondly that there, there's this sort of detective process of deduction you know what's going wrong here why didn't that work. How mm. long have I got left? Um, that that really adds to the tension in, in particularly that long scene. I think. Yeah, I, I I knew when once I conceived of that scene, I just had a sense it was going to be a winner. Like mm. I, I knew I was asking a lot of the reader to just read page after page after page of surgical descriptions. Mm. Uh, but you know, it's not. I'd like to think it's not only that, but it's a it's a sort of I'd like to think it's sort of psych psychological tour de force as well. But um, yes, it just wanted to have that, that, that intensity of that. And th there's that great sense of, as a reader, you're trapped with him. <laughs> I don't know, I was lucky enough that I was sitting somewhere where I was able to just read the whole scene. But if you were on a train and you'd come to your station, I think you would literally have had to stay on the train mm. because you're, you're there with Bauer and he needs to finish and shit, there's another patient. And it, it's quite extraordinary how gripping that is. Yeah, I, I feel that, um, well, we like, we like hospital dramas, don't we? That was one of the reasons I thought I was uh, on fairly safe ground. I mean, that, that the Tolstoy estate's a war story, but it's, mm. it's a love story. It's a, and mm. then I suddenly realised it was at one stage, oh, and it's a hospital drama and it's a crypto ghost story. Once I realised it was a crypto ghost story, <laughs> at that point I was like cackling with, with glee, you know. I, 
maybe I went a step too far. But I thought uh, that was Mets and his methamphetamine. Was that actually a ghost story? Oh, <laughs> it, it's a, well, as I say, crypto. Crypto. Yeah. And it's a, I'm an arch rationalist, but I, I just thought, what, what if one of the characters thought there was a ghost? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, we should talk about Katerina, and I think you've, you've used the terms that I had written down, which were fiery and patriotic. Um, she is also, I don't think I'm spoiling anything by saying she's very much in love with Bauer, but she gives him a terribly hard time. I think it's, it's always a joy to write a powerful woman. Mm. I mean, I'd almost argue that as a male, male author, uh, this might seem, I don't know if this is controversial or not, but I don't know that we have a choice now, <laughs> we, 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 which is, in a, in a sense, I've been scratching my head over that, contemplating my next book, you know, if you write women of the 1940s realistically, vast, vast bulk of them are living their lives um, in, in, in relation to men. They orbit men. It's, 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 uh, you know, there's very, very few who, who are striking out in any, in any meaningful way. You know, if they're strong characters, if they're strong women, they're getting a powerful husband. You know, that's what mm. they're doing. So uh, it was, I, I think that those women did exist and, and it's, it's not necessarily the job of the novel to be representative. It's to, to tell a plausible, um, gripping story. So I've certainly, I'm sure women like Katerina existed in that era and so I've, I've, I've really loved making her bold and strong and powerful and in a sense yeah she's a she has a an animus to Paul's anima his more gentle um, caring persona but I don't remember noticing in the novel I may have missed it but noticing how it was that a woman had wound up and, and a comparatively young woman had wound up in charge of one of the holy sites of Russia was that something that that says a bit about Soviet feminism? How has she got there? Yeah, it, it does actually. Uh, so, so for a start, I perhaps didn't make it clear in the novel that the director has done a runner. So, I mean, he's done a runner, you know, with permission. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they did have to escape in a, in, in a bit of a hurry. Uh, but Soviet, you know, the Soviet Union in theory did have some remarkably progressive things. And, uh, uh, women were were actually allowed into the workforce, but but you know of course with bells on they also had to continue to keep home and and raise children and so on. All the, all the double standards that ex still exist today in in the West ex existed in uh, in pre-Stalinist and Stalinist Russia. But but women were actually given professional roles earlier than they typically were in the West. Hmm. Um, one of the other things that this is a book about, and it takes a while for it to emerge, is that it's a book about writers and writing. And that was one of my favourite angles in the story. But there's two references to Katerina late in the book that I thought um, I should get you to talk about because they fascinated me. This is one. We're 400 pages in by this stage. She says, I think to her son, there's a difference between a slippery writer and a slippery book. I'm not talking about literal truth here, the evocation of facts. I'm talking about a deeper veracity, a fidelity to what life is really like. That's one of those great um, distillations of what fiction does, what, what it does well, that it's supposed to be telling a made-up story in order to point out a deeper truth. That's, I think that's right. I mean, in that context, you know, she, her son is, or she's pretend or said that she's a slippery writer. They're speaking, mm, speaking mm. to a young in any case, I won't do any more plot spoilers. Uh, she, yeah, I think 
uh, reality has to be shaped in fiction um, to to give it a little a little more artistic coherence than typically reality provides, mm. and uh, and also I suppose fiction is ideally how it differs from nonfiction is that perhaps you typically turn to nonfiction to be informed. Uh, but I once heard Hugh McKay, author and social researcher Hugh McKay, say, uh, you, you turn primarily to fiction to be impassioned. Mm. And so that I'm always guided by that, no matter how informative, well-researched a book is, at a, a novel is, at its core, it's about people and passion. And so, yeah, that's what I've tried to hold to in this book. Um, on the very next page, uh, she has this thought, and, and I had written in the margin next to this, ouch. She says, the truths she's talking about, she's referring to herself and her book, A Life on Earth, the truths she's talking about, the ones left out of A Life on Earth, are for the most part a woman's truths. Abortions, her lusts, her low opinion of men as a class, her high regard for a foreign invader. Yes, so um, uh, she, Katerina remains to the end, you know, she remains pugnacious and mm. trenchant in her opinions and uh, and uh, yeah she's reflecting on on the things she's had to leave out to make a, a novel publishable which is a, is a whole other topic uh, you know something I, I still reflect on I I'm currently thinking I don't know if it's gloomily or just realistically that um, does a novel the closer it gets to the truth the more unreadable it gets the fewer readers it can find mm. you know I, I, I think of um, a t you know, superb sequence of, of the Thomas Cromwell novels. You know, I'm just into the third, only at this late stage, and thinking, you know, they're, 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 they're wildly, widely read, and rightly so. They're an astonishing piece of work. But, you know, is Cromwell a bit too good to be true? <laughs> and is that really why? Wouldn't he have been a bit nastier, a bit tougher again? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, is that what, what makes those books palatable, in a sense, if you, if you got the absolute unvarnished Cromwell, we, we'd recoil. I was having this very conversation two nights ago to the effect that I cannot read those books. Mm. I've tried and tried. Yeah. And, and I admire that, I, I know what you're saying, that the, the construction of that world is unbelievably good mm. because it feels convincing. It doesn't feel like a stage set. Mm. But I found myself, once I'd admired the suits of armour and the works, I was thinking, yes, but what's happening here? And, and I think that was the bit that I lost. Yeah, yes, it's, um, oh, look, Brilliant, brilliant writer, there's no doubt, and uh, we can mm. we can talk all night about her. <laughs> but we shouldn't. Of course, we should. We were talking before about squeamishness and about gore and, and bodily functions, but tipping that just slightly, there's a lot of violence in this book, and and to my mind, it's very very well directed. That early on, uh, you know, two or three pages in, a man shoots himself, and then much later in the book, there's this scene where an armored vehicle rolls over, and and it was this sort of slow, protracted violence. Um, and then, of course, there's all the surgery stuff in between. But can you tell us a little bit about how you treat violence and how you approach violence? Because to me, it was really effective. Yeah, so that's interesting that you should say that. I've got a, a friend in Oregon who said, I couldn't possibly read your book. I want to. I don't want to read violence. Da, da, da. And actually, I went through the book vetting it for her. So uh, which pages should you avoid? <laughs> and I only found four. I said, you know, watch out for page 19, watch out for page 63. Um, though, though there are actually only, I mean, you know, of course, depending on how, how, how you um, classify, there are actually only about four 
uh, explicit acts of violence. A lot of it is referred, you're hearing about it. Or, yeah, or the aftermath. Of yeah, in, indeed. Yeah. So, uh, look, I'm, I'm like, a, like a lot of writers, a lot of perhaps stereotypically like a lot of male writers, um, fascinated by violence, the way, and horrified by it, the way that it is just uh, so definitive, you know, I, 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 to sort of quickly psychoanalyze myself, you know, the, the aforementioned boys' boarding school, doesn't matter if you're smart, doesn't matter if you're clever, it doesn't matter if you're trying to be winning, uh, doesn't matter if you're right, uh, the boy with the bigger fist, you know, pr prevails. Yeah. And, uh, and so that's had a, a big uh, impact on my thinking. Yeah, the way that it's always underlying uh, power is always backed up uh, ultimately by the threat of violence, the capacity to inflict violence. Mm. Mm. Um, there are a whole lot of other things I wanted to ask you along the way, and I feel like I'm, I'm just conscious of how the time's got away from us. But um, things that I think are really important to know about a book like this, how did you get, and everyone I've spoken to who's read this book has asked the same thing, how did you get this level of historical detail so right? I know that you, you read Eve, Eve Curie and, and you obviously know your Tolstoy very well, but the small everyday stuff, how have you, what was the process? Yeah, thanks very much, Jock, for that comment. I, I think I had a certain kind of feel, I felt I had a feel for the, the German milieu of the 1940s from yeah. my first book, that I'd done a lot of... For that novel, I'd done a lot of social research about the Third Reich and the, the social mores and, you know, even the, the technology that people had and mm. carried little things like, oh, they had vacuum cleaners, that, that sort of trivial <laughs> stuff, uh, the, the, the lived experience and, and a bit of... And so it's really just a question of research, but then having done the research, trying to wear it lightly, that, you know, the trick is you, you don't want your viewpoint character commenting on observing stuff that would be mundane to them yep. and and then it starts to seem like a, a recitation of, of facts about the period uh, it, so it's got to be psychologically plausible so uh, just in passing if, if, if it's relevant Bauer will will comment on some what, a surgical procedure which is relevant and and so on it's just a question of looking for those really telling details uh, and 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 you get very adept at, at spotting them. They leap out of out from the primary sources and the secondary sources. They leap out at you uh, as something novelistic. Had you been off on a frolic about the Germans and amphetamines? Because I found that completely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, I was. I, I I found this research material myself, and then was absolutely um, well irked to discover uh, a German historian then writing a popular history of this. Yes. You know, while I was in the researching the book. Um, it came out translated into English as blitzed, uh, you know, the history of the... Uh, and then I, but I subsequently discovered that it wasn't just the Germans, that um, a lot of the paratroopers on the, in the D-Day landings were, were pumped up on amphetamines because... And, you know, just for legitimate operational reasons, they needed to be awake for 72 hours to actually hit their objectives. Mm. And so, you know, it's the beginning of, uh, of you know, artificial soldiers, if you like, or enhanced soldiers. So yeah. sure things have moved along since then. Um, the obvious thing to ask at this point, you've written two novels very, very successfully set in World War II. What do you do next? Are you going to stay there? I, my current thinking is that I'm going to continue to do what I'm doing, which is to say, 
plugging away at Australian set novels in the hope that <laughs> one will one and but simultaneously I'm going to try to write two books at once. Okay. But continue in my lane and writing another World War Two in, inspired novel, okay. and and also just plug away with no expectation of publication or success at at something a bit more obviously personal. Oh, that was so cryptic. <laughs> can you tell us any more about either of these things? I, I can tell you one thing. I've decided to go somewhere for the Second World War book. I've decided to go somewhere really hot. <laughs> but a dry heat. Right. <laughs> so, there we are. Uh, so, yeah, other than that. Um, dry heat. Yeah, so, well, okay. that's, I do want to. Rommel? Uh, yeah, I'm starting to think that, that it'd be nice to have a little trio, a little, not a trilogy, although. A little detail that only one person has picked up is that one of the characters, one of the secondary, well, tertiary characters really in the Tolstoy estate is referred to um, in my first novel. Mm -hmm. He's the son of one of the characters in the first novel. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, so... I, it's, yes. I think this is what the industry calls a book cycle. That's it. Well, you know, I think it, <laughs> the, the novels are going to be too loosely connected for that, but I, I like the idea of this trio of 1940s novels with a... German components. Very nice. Mm. Um, I've been talking a lot, and so has Stephen, but I feel like I should turn it over to all of you. Would anyone like to ask Stephen a question, indeed about either of his books? Ralph. Yeah. It struck me too that you reveal Saul survived the war upper critical. But then also, you take Saul from the hospital up to the front line. So it just mm. really you know, Yeah. I thought, oh, gee, what, what, why is this? You know, Yes. So, if anyone didn't hear that question, it was um, my decision in the novel to to take Paul uh, for part of the novel up, literally to the, up to the front line where he works in a dressing station. Uh, and I thought, once again, you don't see too much direct violence there. He's he's, uh, but it's much closer. And I did want to give a sense, uh, once again, to the reader of what it was like to try to, to get up in the morning when it's minus 40 degrees outside and your uniform is covered with lice and then lowering your trousers over the latrine. And uh, I just thought um, I wanted to actually yeah, give that physical reality so the reader would understand what was going on for these soldiers who were coming back uh, into the operating theatre. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, thinking the same thing, Ralph. It was quite alarming, wasn't it, that yeah, turn yeah, of events? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Jack. This is not a question. I think that's one of the best books I've ever read, and I've read many. One of the things, at the end of that operations thing, I felt that we all knew that Paul would be loyal, would do his best. Every operation you're thinking, not only of now, but in mm. the future, that knows that figure's still there. What will it be like for the future of that mm. man? Well, it's very important that everyone hears that this wonderful <laughs> lady thought this was one of the best books she ever read, <laughs> thought it was brilliant. Thanks so much. I really appreciate that. And that Paul, his trustworthiness comes through in the way that he treats people. And, and yes, it, he is, you know, he has, he, he tries to remind himself this is not just another pile of flesh passing under his hand. This, and he goes at one stage, he goes into a kind of a, uh, an exhausted incantation about the person underneath him, loved and is, loves and is loved, loves and is loved. 
you know, just trying to keep to connect with that key reason why he's got to keep focusing on what he's doing. Mm. So it's very rehumanizing, isn't it? As you say, of what is otherwise the pile of flesh. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So someone else was going to ask a question off the back, but they might have thought better of it. They also probably just. Kate, did you just throw a bit? Is that what that was? <laughs> oh, Kirsty. <coughs> well, there is the couple, you know, there, there is, it's not an entirely bleak ending. I think, uh, I think there is a kind of a, okay, I think it's hard for women are the major writers, are readers of fiction, and I frankly think it's hard for women to really buy a happily ever after story with a man. You know, that I, I know that's tough, but if you look at the, a lot of fiction, uh, and movies, for that matter, in the last 30 years, ultimately the man dies. That, that If you look at Titanic, the film, if you look at um, Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier, which has turned into a film with Nicole Kidman, um, there are other examples. I, I think it's uh, for a, 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 a romance to actually have that epic shape, people need to not have it... Uh, um, spoiled by having to clean up his socks uh, beside the bed afterwards. Uh, so, you know, define happy ending. If, it, if, it's, uh, if it's bad breath in bed and dirty socks, then... Um, so it's a, a decision. But look, it's a, it's a legitimate question. People are, uh, you know, I think romance is the core of, 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 of a core trope of the novel and, and I'm going to have another. And, and you know, I've, I'm, people are, who I've discussed the idea with this evening, and it can allow them to have a happy ending. So I'm thinking about it. You're a hard man. <laughs> um, the way that I'd like to finish, if I may, is that 23 chapters into this novel, Katerina writes a letter to Paul, and it's this kind of extended riff on the value of novels, which I absolutely loved. Um, I'm going to read a little bit of what I underlined, and then I'll ask you to read the second bit, if I sure. may. Okay, here we go. So this is Katerina talking. To be clear, I'm not saying that the novel as a form will disappear any more than poetry has disappeared since it, excuse me, since it lost its status as the most prestigious branch of literature. But its importance will fade. Everything fades, I suppose. Certainly everything made by human hands. And yet I can't help feeling bereft to witness this diminution of the novel, which for all of its inadequacies has trained us to see the world from other points of view. And I'll hand to you from there. Um, from the underlining there. Can you see that? Yep. Yep. The Hitler. Sorry, we've got to back. Okay, we're starting with Hitler. Oh, I see it. Right. The terrifying truth is that it could have been worse. Hitler could have won. Kennedy and Khrushchev could have blown us all to hell. And who knows what other horrors we've evaded because someone or someone's teacher or someone's mother or grandfather once put down a novel and thought, my God, I'm like that stranger, or that stranger is like me, or even that stranger is utterly different from me, and yet how understandable his hopes and longings are. And in the future, as fewer and fewer people use these engines of empathy, what horrors will we not avoid? Uh, 
It's thanks for, for oh, pointing that out. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I have wanted to, one of the things I wanted to do here is write a novel for the true believers. And, and you know, it's, it's a bit controversial to, to, in a sense, have ideas discussed in a book. And I thought, oh, damn it, people in real life do talk about ideas. It's not as though it's unrealistic. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, one of the things I was achieving is I wanted that Paul and Katarina to be drawn together by conversation. And I'd like to think it's not dry, but witty and, mm. and, and hopefully occasionally moving. Yeah. So Stephen, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Jock. Thank you very much.